Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, one of the editors of Undisclosed, and we are talking about episode two, The State versus Greg Lance. I really recommend if you have not caught up on this series in Undisclosed, you go back, start at episode one, listen to that episode, then listen to episode two, and then check out both addenda on this episode. It's a super interesting case. And we've got a really special guest with us, Erica Suter. She's a post-conviction and appellate criminal defense attorney practicing throughout Maryland and D.C. She blogs on the subject at MarylandPostConviction.com since establishing her firm in 2011. The life sentences of 10 of her clients have been modified or vacated. She's won a total of 177 years of sentence reduction for her clients, and she's been selected to the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association's Best Lawyers Under 40 and apparently is a super lawyer. Hello, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And also with us are Rabia. Hello, Rabia. Hey, how are you doing? Great. And also we've got Susan Simpson on the line. Hey, Susan. Hey, Rebecca. So quick synopsis of episode two. Uh, In episode two of the series, we learn why the authorities immediately identified Greg as their principal suspect in the murders of the Kolesnikows because of an ongoing property dispute between him and the victims. The Kolesnikows had filed foreclosure proceedings against Greg, who responded by filing a Chapter 11 bankruptcy to stop the foreclosure. We hear about his day-long interrogation with TBI agent Bob Krofsik and him being booked on a completely different charge for assaulting a man during a road rage incident about a week or so prior. Greg consented to being given a GSR test, that's gunshot residue, having his hand shaved, having his shoes and socks taken for testing, and having his home and car searched, and a couple of his weapons taken for testing as well. I have thoughts about that. I'm sure you guys do too. Greg's girlfriend Becky, his friend Keith, and Keith's girlfriend Kay were also questioned by police the same day and given statements consistent with Greg's. Greg gave an accounting of his evening but left out some very important details, like being with another woman that night at a motel, and the investigators couldn't corroborate where he was the night before the murders. Now, Rabia, one thing that really stuck out to me in this episode and something that I've heard you answer in person on panels, but you addressed very directly in this episode, was the balance for you when you decide to take a case on for the podcast. And you talked kind of openly in this episode, both at the beginning and the end, about some of your inner conflicts about this case. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I thought I'd pull the curtain back a little bit. And I mean, we get asked this all the time, how we decide to take cases. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of considerations. It's not just that, I, I mean, sometimes there's a case where we think, yeah, this person's probably innocent, but there's other reasons we can't take it. So for example, maybe their lawyer doesn't want to work with us. Maybe there isn't any 
like there's not a lot we could do in the case, right? There's not a lot of leads left or there isn't a lot of like procedurally, there's not much left we could do for that defendant or we might not have access to records or audio. I mean, like there's a lot of reasons that we might still say no, but you know, so, so a lot of things have to line up before we say yes. And in, even that yes is usually preliminary. Like, so it'll, I don't know at, at what points, actually I'd be interested in hearing from Susan at what point she's like, yep, click, I'm taking this. But you yeah, know, I want to hear that Susan, too. <laughs> yeah, Susan, Colin and I, we kind of independently make decisions on the cases that we then end up taking leads on. Um, it's interesting, this case came to me, uh, well, I mean, I described how I got it, but uh, around the same time that another case came to me, also a double homicide. And that case also is really interesting. Um, and, you know, I spent probably equal amounts of time on both cases trying to see how valid I think the innocence claim was, what kind of, you know, flaws in the case there were, what kind of leads there were and all that stuff. Um, and in both cases, it's interesting. I connected with the families. In Greg's case, you've got Linda, who's been this amazing advocate for 18 years, um, with the other family they've been in touch so many times, you know, they, and it's hard because you feel a lot of pressure, right? Like you want to help, but ultimately with that particular case, I just, I I haven't found what has convinced me that it's a valid innocence claim yet. Whereas with this case, the further I got in, you know, you keep waiting to find something that's gonna prove that either he lied or, or something's contradictory and it just didn't happen. Everything right. just kept kind of lining up. It just kept checking out. I would like, I mean, and Greg's mother is, I, I can't even tell you, like they, they've got like a where they have so much documentation in this case. She's kept like every single letter he's written, like since 2000, you know, so things Greg says to me today, I'll find a letter from like 2003 in which he said it. And you know what I mean? So it's like, hmm. I keep, um, so I think it took about seven, eight months before I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is bullshit. This case is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> meaning the state's case is bullshit. And then and then once you're convinced, you're in all the way, right? Yeah. Susan, is it the same for you? I mean, it, it, with each case, we get cases so many ways that I wouldn't say it's like one process. Um, some cases we get into quicker and some I'll kick around for like, I mean, at least in one case I'm thinking of now, years to be honest. And it's not even, uh, it's not even a matter of like, is this an innocence case or not? There are so many more considerations for it. Often, even if I feel convinced of an innocence case, my involvement may, or podcast involvement may not be beneficial there, in which case there's no point in us doing it. Um, other times there's like considerations about like, you know, strategic plans for the case or a lack of attorney in the case. So there's that going on. And then most cases, even when I start getting more serious looking into it, I mean, it's always preliminary. You never know how long it's going to take before you know the case is ready to fill for the podcast. And sometimes even you get a case that's you're pretty far along on and you have to back away for whatever reason. So it's a mix. Erica, what about you? I mean, this, you're coming at this from obviously a very different uh, job and role in the criminal justice system. And, you know, I don't know to what extent you get to choose your clients or whether they hire and choose you. Uh, when you hear this in the podcast and you hear Susan and Rabia talking, how does that compare with your experience in, you know, choosing which cases to put your your professional energy into? And, you know, I know it's just like such a tremendous amount of work and money spent on the lawyer's side. Uh, how do you choose which baskets to put those eggs in? So for me, it's different. But I also have a I have a question for Rabia and Susan. But a lot of times because I'm occasionally doing innocence cases, but I'm also doing more generally wrongful conviction cases. So somebody's guilt or innocence, 
in some respects is irrelevant if I'm saying there was ineffective assistance of counsel. So a lot of times I try not to think about that when I'm just doing sort of a standard post-conviction. But all the time, friends ask me, you know, do you have a gut instinct? Do you have a vibe that this person is innocent or not? And I really don't, or if I have one, I don't know that I believe it. And I'm super curious as to Robbie and Susan. Obviously, you're doing your due diligence and you're looking at the evidence in a case. But do you get sort of a feeling preliminarily? Does that feeling evolve over time of just a gut instinct as to whether or not somebody's innocent or guilty? I think I have an instinct now for where a case is going to have interesting turns. I have a sense now I can get a case file, get a summary and be like, okay, there's going to be some interesting turns here. There's some new stuff here that we looked into. Um, So in that respect, I think I kind of have a a sense of what cases have a compelling history that's being uncovered. But the whole guilt-innocence part, I remain pretty firmly agnostic on for a very long time. I mean, it just doesn't matter in initial stages. Like, you're there to find facts and to find what you can figure out. And if you have an opinion about guilt or innocence one way or another, it's going to direct the way you're looking. So it's better just to be like, this case is definitely worth looking into and put the question of guilt or innocence aside um, until you get to a point where you can actually evaluate it fairly. I get a little bit more of an emotional investment from Rabia vibe. I will say, I get the sense that Rabia... Uh, I mean, you, Robbie, tell me if I'm wrong. You have sort of like an inner guiding star that you're listening to sometimes with these cases, right? I mean, not necessarily. I'll say this. Um, so two things about that. Number one, in response to what Erica was asking, I do think there are certain red flags that I I, I remember um, Jeffrey Deskovich. And this was uh, when we had the this we had this gala for to fundraise for Adnan a long time ago, like four or five years ago. Night for Justice Gala and Jeffrey Deskovich, and you know, he's an exonerated man who does a lot of wrongful conviction work now. He gave a talk about like the red flags, you know, the red flags you see in a lot of wrongful innocence, uh, wrongful conviction cases. And at that point, Adnan's case was kind of like the only case I really had some experience on. But I, I remember, you know, I just kind of took those notes. And now I realize like almost every case we've covered, you see the same, you do see a very similar pattern. So like the police, you know, having tunnel vision, like not like focusing on one defendant from the very beginning, um, forensics not being there at all or not being strong, being questionable. Most of the like the conviction resting on eyewitness testimony and oftentimes testimony that's changed over time. And then sometimes you might have a, you know, cops or a prosecutor that have a certain pattern of behavior and you know that because of other cases. So it's like you do see common red flags and that always makes me think, okay, well, that's there, right? Like, but that's still not enough to sustain like a conviction of innocence. But I'll say this and it's interesting because I saw some, um, I never look at iTunes reviews, by the way, um, to our listeners, if you like Undisclosed, please go give us some five-star reviews on iTunes. Do it. Do it. Head over to Crime Writers On and do it there, too, please. <laughs> Go there, too. Anybody else got a podcast? 45th. Just, just give all our please. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. <laughs> but having said it, so I was reading some reviews, and I uh, a number of people said, like, I saw the same review over and over, uh, maybe, like, at least six or seven times. And I thought, wait, I, I guess they don't understand what we're doing. And that was like, well, these guys are really biased. These guys are really biased. Well, here's the thing. We are not going to put a case on air unless – we're like, we're here to help exonerate this person. Mm-hmm. You know, like at that point, we're at that point, we're pretty, we're going to be biased because we're not, this is not a did he or didn't he? This is not serial. This is, these are wrongfully convicted people. We are helped to, here to help exonerate them. This is the case. And of course we're biased. We already think, at that point, we think they're innocent. 
um, something would have to drastically change, like, you know, during the course of the investi- uh, like the reporting for that, you know, but has that's never happened um, during or after. Yeah. I mean, bias implies like a, a precondition, like a pre-approach. What, th- what we're doing is like taking the ones we've reached a conclusion on and airing those. So, so and it's a lot of time, a lot of time before we get there. I mean, I think it was at least eight months on this case before I said to the family, okay, we're going to do it. Um, maybe even long. I can't remember. It was a while, but you know, I do, I have a personal, I do have a personal connection to this work because I understand what it's like to be the Linda in the case or, mm. you know, like the loved one. And it is personal to me. I just, yesterday I was um, in New York and I, I was at an event for the Aspen Institute about criminal justice and I was sitting on this panel with like all these artists who do work around criminal justice. They use their art to talk. And I swear I cried like three times just sitting there watching their art because it, it's personal. It's simple as that. So yeah, I, I, once I'm in, I'm in, I'm in heart and soul. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons why listeners connect with you and, you know, you, in this episode, there are a couple of elements of this case, not in the facts of the case or anything like that, but there's a couple of, like, threads in it that remind me of the Joey Watkins case a little bit because, you know, we have a guy who is imperfect, like, you know, that you can look at, uh, you know, as a, as a person in 2019, as a woman in 2019 and say, like, there are some imperfections here. This is somebody with some, you know, impulsive, uh, violent tendencies. He talked very openly about his, like, you know, road rage incident. You know, he talks very openly about, you know, whether or not, of course, it's completely unclear, like, what his relationship actually looked like. But he talks very openly about, you know, meeting this other woman that at this motel and all this stuff and like it's easy to see the imperfections in human beings and it's important obviously to sift those out from the evidence pointing to whether or not they should be in prison for a crime or not and I I really do love Rabia when we hear when the audience and you know me as the audio editor like I love hearing you not grapple with but address that stuff because I do think that is hard for people the public to overcome it's hard for the public to overcome imperfect people who were wrongfully convicted you know what I mean it's hard for us to overcome it I mean I had to spend a lot of time on the domestic violence allegation I had to speak to a lot of people I had to really work through that issue and then the whole him spending the night with another one I was like oh my god I, I remember <laughs> I don't think I just said a few months ago I think there was a case that I sent to somebody who sent it to me and I said Susan this is like another cheater <laughs> oh, I can't I deal with one. this <laughs> I was like, I'm not looking at this case. You look at the case because the guy's alibi was like his side piece or whatever. I was like, I can't do it. So I mean, but the prosecutors love those cases. Like that's the thing. Like I mean, when you have a case where the defendant's history lines up with the crime they're charged with, then it gets harder, um, mm. and you need to sift more carefully through it. But most of the time, you have someone who is just a regular shitty human being who has done shitty things that are just not related to whatever crime they're charged with, right. and. It's on the podcast, you have to address that because otherwise they'll be like, oh, they didn't say he was a terrible human being. But for me, right. it's just so like I always kind of I mean, I, I do roll my eyes. Like I try not to do that in the podcast. Like I try and you know to address it and, and give people the full information. But for me, I'm yeah, there's a lot of eye rolling because you see it all the time in cases and I just don't care. <laughs> Get a whole new perspective on Ram 1500 and Ram Heavy Duty. Motor Trend's back-to-back truck of the year at the Ram Start Something New sales event. 
Now during Owner Appreciation Month, finance and get $11,250 in total values on the 2019 Ram 1500 Classic Bighorn Crew Cab. Hurry in for great deals during the Ram Start Something New sales event. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Package values based on combined value of package items. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery from dealer stock by 2 3 I'll tell you, I spoke to a witness in this case who said to me, you know, I there's this black guy in prison for killing this old white lady. This is out in Tennessee, like, I don't know, like 20 odd years ago. He's like, everybody knows he didn't do it. Like, I mean, it sounded like, and I was like, oh, really? I'm taking notes because I'm investigating this case, but I'm taking notes. because I'm like, maybe I'll take that out. So I went ahead. And I was like, let me just pull the file on this defendant. And I, I ordered his records. Well, he could very well be completely innocent of killing this old lady who he's serving a life sentence for. But he had like six like assault and rape charges before that. So he might be innocent of this. Yeah. <laughs> but he's already got this history. And so, I mean, I thought about that for a while. I was like, you know. Yeah, those are harder. The ones, the ones where it's like lined up. Yeah. Yeah. The ones where you find yourself wondering, like, if, if you're asking the question about, you know, the person's deserving, you know, 10 hours of audio. <laughs> I mean, it's not a question of whether or not they deserve justice. I totally, totally understand. And I think that's also a service you're doing for the audience. One thing I alluded to in giving the summary of the episode, and I wanted to ask you about, Erica, when I hear about, you know, suspects, you know, who meet with the police who are clearly being questioned about a crime that's been committing. And, you know, it's very easy to armchair quarterback and like that, you know, the advice I give to my kids of like, don't give the police anything if you don't have a lawyer in the room, if they don't have a search warrant, all that stuff. And then you also think about the other flip side of it where the police will ask the question, well, why wouldn't you let us shave your hand and take your hair? Why wouldn't you let us search your car? Why wouldn't you let us take your guns, all that stuff? What do you hear when you hear stories about people in that situation being interrogated for long periods of time uh, who know they didn't do it or presumably know they didn't do it, just being like, yeah, you can look at my stuff and how that exact thing, that thing that a reasonable person who thinks they're innocent would do, can come back and bite them in the ass later? What do you hear when you hear those scenes? Basically, I don't hear anything because it's drowned out by my internal screaming. Screaming of no, 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 just don't do it. <laughs> like I can't. Yeah, like everything inside of me is screaming no, and I'm listening and thinking about how long it went on. There is no good that can come from giving that long statement to the police. Um, and of course, I can see, and it happens all the time in my cases how a lay person would be like, see, I have nothing to hide. You know, like a guy whose girlfriend is suspecting him of something. Here, look at my phone. I have nothing to hide. And maybe in sort of common conversation, that seems consistent with innocence. But there's always a way to pull out some inconsistency and use that against you. So I don't know that I've ever, even when looking at cases where defense attorneys have tried to make that argument, see, he cooperated he had nothing to hide. It, it always help. gets twisted. It it mm. never, ever, ever seems to serve a defendant well. Yeah, I've never mm. seen a case where like, oh, but look, he actually did cooperate. So clearly he didn't do it. No, that never works out that way. It's only yeah. they can use it to say, yes, he didn't cooperate. So he's guilty. But like the reverse is never true. And let's be real. I mean, I talk about this with my husband, Kevin, all the time. If I were suspected of murdering him, you could find a hundred completely innocent text messages, emails, communications between us that someone could say are an indicator that I was planning to murder him. Uh, you, you totally could. You could find me being like, 
I can't believe you did that. (laughs) 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 Or what the fuck were you thinking? Or, you know, it's like there's a, you know, a million like, you know, it's, yeah, (laughs) it doesn't help. So my advice to my kids is right. Is that what you're saying, Erica? Like, don't give them anything. Call a lawyer. Children, <laughs> the lawyer. The cra- here's the crazy thing, though. In this case, the crazy thing is Greg did call his lawyer. He yeah. called his lawyer. He had a lawyer. It wasn't, I don't know if that guy did criminal defense, but he was the one handling his bankruptcy and said, this is what's going on. And he's like, yeah, yeah, just go ahead and just tell him whatever they want. Oh. Like, go, you know. Just- well, he's a bankruptcy attorney, so. Yeah, maybe that's what it was. But he, I mean, but even then, I'm not a criminal defense attorney. I'm an immigration lawyer, and I'm like, no, don't talk to the cops. I well, and I think... One of the important things to keep in mind is it's not just I'm not saying that I did this or so it's not just inculpatory statements that saying you're guilty of the crime, but they're also just looking for inconsistencies. So that's what's so dangerous about it, because we all probably give inconsistent statements at some point because we don't have a good grip on whatever we did that day. Or you had an affair the night before and like you're like, oh, I'm not a suspect. So I'm just going to omit this little awkward detail. Totally. Yeah, because you, you think you're not going to repeat this conversation later. You think this is it. You think they're just going to let you go. So why would you air your dirty laundry to them if you don't need to, right? Did he? How did he end up at the police station in the first place? Did he just voluntarily show up? Did they go and get him? How did that? They're at his house. No, no, no. Oh, they're, they're at his yeah. house. Okay. They're at his house until about I think five or six o'clock, and then they book him and they take him down oh. to the police station. I, I, I still wonder like what they're talking about for all that time. Like that's a long ass conversation. For even like first thing important, like a murder, like I don't even know how you'd fill that time up. Hmm. He did say he was talked out. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, one thing that I wondered about is that it seemed like everybody had heard about Victor and Allah, the victims, pattern of these kind of real estate underhanded foreclosure dealings, uh, evicting people from properties, um, all that stuff, including the fire guy, the fireman guy who had, you know, helped Victor inadvertently evict somebody because of a fire code violation. Shouldn't this mean that, like, lots of people would be pissed off at this couple and not just this one guy? Well, yeah. Like the the reason Greg had a motive is the reason a lot of people had a motive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, I th- see. I don't know if at that time. So you know, the lead investigator is not the local police department. It's TBI. You know, it's Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent Krofsik. I don't know how familiar he might have been with you know Victor and Allen and all these other people that they were also suing. So I think you know number one, Greg was the first name they got. They got it from Victor's sister. Number one. Uh, and number two, I think when they went and spoke to him, I think some of the inconsistencies, you know, it didn't look good for him when they went to talk to the the clerk at the, you know, where he said he bought the beer. And he's like, I don't remember that guy. I'm here every night. Like, I didn't see that guy. Um, and they showed two pictures. And I suspect we don't know exactly, but I suspect the other picture was his friend Keith, because Keith was the other suspect initially. So I think that just made them more suspicious. But it just seemed like they showed up hoping he would. You know, confess like, like yeah, yeah, confess. I did it. Yeah. Sure, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, were we supposed to think that? I mean, first of all, thank you for your very exhaustive and thorough explanation of the different ways to file bankruptcy. It's very interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> but I was like, we... when I was, I was, I was like, this is kind of stodgy. But I was like, I, our listeners love this stuff. <laughs> they do. Like it. They want an they education. <laughs> it's your trademark. <laughs> yeah. Eight minutes of boring facts with music underneath. Um, no, I really, I actually really, it was helpful because my, one of my questions was, 
Uh, do you think that it's reasonable that investigators thought Greg would think that the debt would just like magically go away if these people died? I mean, we had heard that he hired a lawyer when he structured this deal, right? Because he knew about how they dealt with people. Like, and as you point out, the debt didn't go away. So, do investigators think that he thought it would go away? And is is that reasonable given that he seems like a kind of a savvy guy when it came to making this deal in the first place? And I think also remember that the investigators are not bankruptcy attorneys either, so they may think that oh, it goes good away. Point. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point that I didn't think about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Greg did provide um, investigators and his defense counsel. Well, his defense counsel, I would say. He gave them all, you know, once he was charged, like all the evidence of like, I, I we were negotiating. I was doing everything I was supposed to do. I was making sure that by the time of, you know, the hearing, all my stuff was in order. I renewed the insurance. Like any deficiency I was trying to like make up. Um, so that was not a motive for me. And I think... Yeah, I think maybe it was just the investigator. But, you know, I will say um, the attorney, the uh, Bradley McLean, who testified um, at trial, and I've spoken to Mr. McLean a, a number of times now, either at trial or in one of his statements, he did say that for a lot of people, the perception might be that if I'm being foreclosed on, that's it, I'm going to lose my property. But mm-hmm. I think Greg would not have filed Chapter 11 unless he knew that he could probably stop it. Like he had no reason to spend that money on lawyers unless, you know, he was pretty savvy with money. Hmm. What do you think, Erica, when you hear this, you know, chapter 11 filing, that he was working the legal process, that he had lawyers. Does that fit with somebody who would also then hatch a plot to, you know, shoot people and then burn their house down in this very dramatic uh, murder? I mean, what did you think when you heard that part of the episode? Well, I 100 percent can see how the prosecutor would package that information and sell it to a jury. I can see how lay people would buy either not understanding that that doesn't make the proceeding just sort of come to a halt or a belief that he thought it would make the proceeding come to a halt or that he's so angry that he's spending all of this money and that they're doing this underhanded thing and he's a guy with a temper. So I could see, I mean, rationally, I can also see why it it seems sort of absurd. But in terms of what you see getting packaged up with a bow and given to a jury, I'm not surprised at all that this is what they land on as motive. Hmm. You know, a little nugget that gets dropped in the episode, I don't know if you know more about this, is that the Kolesnikow's son then inherited, you know, all this property. I'm assuming that that son inherited, you know, other properties they may have owned, right? Did they own other properties? Was this business larger than just this one deal they'd done with Greg and wanted to get this money back? Were they still active property owners at the time of their death? Yeah, they had a a number of estates, and I don't know exactly how many, but they had a lot of different estates. And um, he became the executor of the estate, but he's not the only son. Uh, they had other children mm-hmm. too. And to be honest, I don't know, I don't really know how the property was eventually, you know, divided or how the inheritance took place. But this, this particular, um, parcel, the Ford mobile home park, I think he had some, there were some relatives that took over and then they actually just auctioned it. They auctioned it off. And mm-hmm. I, and I, I don't think it was that much late, maybe like about a year within the following year it was they got rid of it so because mm-hmm. nobody wanted to run it who's going to run it i mean it's it's not it's not like a a condo you just rent out or you know what i mean yeah. this is you know like dozens and dozens of trailers that have been maintained and there's like all this or are not maintained in the case of some of them or the infrastructure yeah 
Right. I mean, yeah, one thing that people might not know is the nightmare that uh, this happens a lot where I live, where people take over mobile home communities and they realize that, you know, who's on the hook for the sewer part and the infrastructure or the septic part and the infrastructure part? Like there's a whole other thing there that is it could be very difficult in terms of financing, in terms of. And so when I heard this whole like owner backed financing thing like that made sense to me, even though it seemed weird that they would take on so much of that debt personally. But it also seemed like that was part of their pattern is that if they are debt holders, they can also be foreclosers. Right. Right. Hmm. Um, I just have another pop culture reference I want to throw in here because Colin's not here. So I feel like someone has to do it. Um, <laughs> this is not me speculating on anything having to do with other uh, theories of the crime, even though I personally have them. It wouldn't be responsible to share them. But have any of you guys watched the show Ozark on Netflix? Yes. <laughs> because there is something about this, too, that for me tracks with that show. Like, you know, the purchase of a downtrodden property, the sort of pumping of cash into it while paying somebody $1,000, you know, a month or whatever to sort of be the caretaker. It's like Ruthie <laughs> and Netflix. I never like... made that connection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is like the story just has layers, man. It's like an onion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, that, that was actually something that um, it's interesting to bring that up because, again, that same attorney, Bradley McLean, in one of his statements was like, he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand why Greg was like fighting to keep the property. He, mm. but also he did not know the full. He didn't see the full picture. What he knew was his clients had told him, which is he had never been out to the property. He had never known the Klesnik house until this. He had only met them twice um, during the course of this, and all he knew was what they were telling, which is like this property has like lost all this value. It's like, and so given that perspective, he was like, well, then why does this guy want is fighting to keep it? Maybe he's laundering money or using it. Like is is a place he like the drugs or, and, uh, but it's actually kind of not true. Um, it's right. kind of not true, and we'll get into that a little bit later about like wh- where the property actually was and how it was doing at the time. Well, it didn't sound like he was fighting to keep it, but I think he was. It sounded to me initially like he was fighting to keep it, but then it mostly sounded like he was fighting just not to lose his shirt. Like he was willing to let it go, but didn't want to have to you know not get. Yeah, you know what I mean. That that's what it yeah. sounded like to me. He wasn't hell-bent um, on keeping it at all costs. He, like, he did want to, he wasn't going to just, he wanted a favorable settlement, as anyone would, right. in a property negotiation. Right. right. And he had a lot wrapped up in it. I mean, his marriage had dissolved sort of around the acquisition of this property. Allegedly. He probably <laughs> felt, yeah, well, you're right, allegedly. But, you know, he could have just felt some sort of like, this This is not just a you know time and monetary investment, but it's also a lot of my life that I've put into this. I think he didn't want to get screwed either. Like, you know, he, he didn't want to get screwed by this guy. Like, you know, that's what this guy did. Hmm. And so, I just have a background I'm unfamiliar. Like, when I think of a trailer park, I just think of somebody buying the park where each person owns their own trailer and rents, like, their little plot. But is this actually... This is a park that comes with trailers and people just rent the trailers. Is that how it works? A little of both. They owned a lot of trailers. And that was kind of one of the holdover issues with the whole when tenants moved out. Because of past problems at the property, they had a mandatory inspection policy where we, they couldn't just move someone in without having inspected first because they were notorious mm. for having trailers that were up, not up to code. Mm. So um, I think I think they had some that were not owned by them, but most of the trailers there were, in fact, yeah, there's some. Some were definitely owned by the people who lived in them, but a lot of them were owned by the by the park owners. Hmm. Yeah, and they were just rented. And there was a whole thing where he wanted him to build storage units on the property, which again 
I don't want to like point to Ozark too heavily, is another uh, very often cash business that is used by money launderers. I always learned here in New Hampshire, looking at lots of court records, that the uh, and I, again, I'm not implying that any of these people are money launderers because I don't have the facts in front of me, but that the businesses I was always like looked at in court records are always laundromats, self-storage, car washes, <laughs> like anything where people might likely just come in and hand you a $100 bill. Like that is your money laundering uh, business opportunity. And it was interesting to me that um, the self-storage thing was seen as a uh, a business upside. And apparently because what the... Kolesnikow still had a, a mortgage on the property. Like, that was part of the deal, which was weird to me. Like, if they sold it to him, that they would have conditions on what he should build there, what he had to build there. Yeah, like, that that's is interesting. Weird. That is weird. Hmm. It's weird. And um, Greg, when I asked about it, he said that he also thought it was weird, but... That's why he stopped doing it. <laughs> well, he stopped... He, yeah, he stopped doing it, but also he's like, he didn't have the money to do it, but they also weren't, weren't getting rented. He's like, they were just kind of standing there. So he's like, well, I'm with... But he said that he he told me that he had conversations with Victor about it over that course of that like well, the previous year or so and said, look, dude, these are not moving. I don't know what you're going to do. At some point, you know, I'll continue to build, but not now. And Victor seemed okay with it, but it did become a convenient reason for him to then foreclose. Right. It feels like a gotcha, like a setup. It does. It does like uh, setting them up for failure, right? Like these things aren't going to rent. You're not going to want. Yeah. Yeah. The taxes were due. The taxes for 1987 were due in April. And, you know, they started foreclosure proceedings, I think, I think uh, the next month. So they didn't Mm, wait. Wow. They were waiting. One question I have, because you mentioned in the episode that even with all this court stuff going on, that like, you know, Victor stopped by the park to try to talk to Greg, and then Greg went by Victor's house to try to talk to him. Aside from the fight that was going on in court, does how does Greg characterize their personal interactions? Does he say they would fight, or does he say they were civil, but, you know, also having this court battle? Did he talk about that at all with you? Yeah, he said that they were always civil, and um, I haven't talked to anybody yet who had said anything otherwise no, all the records show it was like regular. I mean, they, you know, that's obviously an underlying edge, but the actual interactions were civil. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if look, if they were going to settle this, they were going to continue to both be invested in this property. Right. And so he had to kind of maintain a relationship. But also like, I mean, like when I spoke to um, Bradley McLean about the deposition that he did, Greg's deposition and Keith, you know, one thing he said to me was and this is I met him actually in person. He said to me, he said Keith was like crazy the whole time, angry and pissed off. And I have a theory about that. We'll get into that later. Uh, But Greg was just like completely just quiet and relaxed and just seemed very like, you know, and that's like kind of the sense I keep getting from most people um, that he was pretty laid back, which is why that road rage incident was odd. Yeah. And he even seems laid back talking about it, you know, (laughs) as a matter of fact. Yeah. Yeah, which I could see how if you were a prosecutor, you could also use that. Right, Erica? 100%. I mean, mm. what can't you use as a prosecutor? <laughs> Excellent question. That should be the slogan, like under prosecutor billboards. <laughs> what can't we use? So another turn happens at the end of the episode when we hear that Greg's actual alibi, uh, alleged alibi, is that he spent time with another woman. Did the police interview the other woman? Um, did she figure into the case at all as his alibi in court? No, um, I have found no evidence that the police ever interviewed her. And I, I don't even honestly know if they were ever told. What I know is that um, his defense investigator, as they were preparing for trial, did speak to her a number of times. I think he met with her like three times. Uh, so his attorney, he had told his attorneys, they told the defense investigator. He went out and interviewed her a number of times. 
they did not present her at trial. Um, and there's a reason for that. And she's also not strictly an alibi because the timing it was like she. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they didn't present her at trial. There is a reason why they didn't present her at trial. The, you don't have to tell us what it is, but you know, there's a reason. There is a reason. And, and I mean, um, yeah, I think I'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. I'm trying to think, okay. am I going to touch on that? I am going to touch on that later. But there's a reason she, she technically she, according to what Greg said, okay, they have different timelines is what I'll say. Greg okay. and his, uh, and his affair partner had different timelines for that night. And I think that was how long they were together, <laughs> how long they were together. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, men always think it's longer than it was. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to get at least one angry tweet about that. You know, we already got an angry tweet about your redneck reference from last time. Uh, well, I'm, I CC me on that. I'm happy to defend it. Um, <laughs> um, quite another question is uh, the road rage incident, which as we mentioned, Greg talks about very matter of fact, it seems to indicate uh, that he he does have this kind of matter-of-fact but violent streak. Did he have other violent charges, uh, incidences that he was charged with? Was he convicted with the road for the road rage thing that he was actually charged with, or of anything else like it? Yeah, no. no so that that whole thing kind of um, he got ten days suspended and a fifty dollars fine, and that was the end of that. Hmm. Um, but I haven't found anything. Any other charges related to there was a like a theft charge from 95 or 97 that apparently was, I think, his ex-wife's brother's motorcycle or something that his friend had driven off with. And it was it was just like a family dispute type of thing. And and that was it. He just he didn't he just didn't have any other criminal charges against him. So, yeah, it was kind of odd. I don't know if he was just like. I mean, it could just be like this guy was like messing with him and he was sick of it because for a long time he had been like trying to get around to him and then he just snapped. That's what road rage is. Well, Erica, you are a special guest. I'm wondering what questions you might have for Robbie and Susan about what you've heard in the series so far. Anything stick out to you that like you're dying to dig into? Well, I have some random questions because this is how my mind works. Uh, one of which is, how many people are living in the house with Greg and why? <laughs> yeah, so there were a lot. Of, you know, he had a kind of a revolving crew of construction workers. Um, and some of them would run trailers and some of them lived other places. And a few of them, he just let them crash at his house. There was just more space there. There are a couple of different bedrooms in it. And so at the time of... Uh, in August of 1998, you had Keith, uh, you had this guy, Eric Tanner, and then you had another guy named David Anderson. Those three men were crashing at Greg's, and all three of them worked for him in some capacity or another. Do you know if he was paying them, like, under the table, and this was, like, part of the deal? Like, you get, you know, this much cash a week, plus you get this place to stay? Or is it, it is just more, was it, you know, not that informal? I don't know if it was, like, that's an interesting question. Maybe, maybe lodging part of like what they were, how they were getting paid. I don't know, but I do know, like, I mean, he kept pretty, I mean, like his ledgers and stuff, um, his financial ledgers, they all, you know, he documents like, you know, everything he's paid them, like how much he paid them and when he paid them. So. And if you want to make sure workers show up for work, well, that's one way of doing it. Yeah. You know exactly where they are. <laughs> I know you're oh, up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, get in the truck. We're going in. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you guys talked about was, I think, like, that they had brought 25 foreclosure proceedings in a very small period of time. Do you guys have any information about any 
Were there other ongoing disputes or foreclosure proceedings that were happening at the same time that Greg's were happening? So these were a combination of foreclosure and eviction. They weren't all foreclosures, but the answer is yes. And we are going to get into them because they are relevant to the case. Got it. I think I have a lot of those that you're going to have to be like, wait, nope, hold on. Not yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah. And another question, because he said, uh, Greg said that he gets a call from Becky at 1228 a.m. And you said that cell phone record exists. Is there any cell phone tower evidence in this case? No, there's no, well, I haven't. No, I don't know. OK, no, no, no. Mm. Hmm. There is, and that will be seven episodes of Susan tearing it apart. <laughs> if uh, if that record exists somewhere, I might need Susan to come and no, find it. No, they didn't because, get that. They yeah. didn't get that data. Yeah, I don't okay. think that exists at all. Yeah, we have a listener question. If you don't mind, if I just ask it, at uh, Laddie Page on Twitter says uh, she wants to know the result of Greg's GSR test. And a broader question about GSR tests: whether or not someone can, can avoid gunshot residue just by wearing gloves. And did the police then claim that one of Greg's guns was the murder weapon in this case? You might be getting to this, but uh, I'm obligated and happy to ask listener questions. And I had those same questions. So I wanted to include them. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get into the forensics in another episode. And we'll talk about this test and the all, everything else, basically the shoes, the socks, the hair from his hands, arms, whatever. Uh, and so we have to put that off. Can somebody avoid by wearing gloves? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I guess can... so. Yeah, I can talk about this a little bit because I've had a case kind of recently that had where the defendant had one single particle of GSR. It's, and it's always one, that, I swear to God. Like, yeah, how do you get one, one particle consistent. on you? So, and it's one of those incredibly frustrating pieces of evidence that whether, no matter what shows up, there's a way to sort of twist it in support of what the mm. pr- proponent of the evidence is trying to do. So what somebody what the state witness will say or the the GSR person will say is you could avoid it by wearing gloves it may fall off over the course of time you could wash it off um just you know that there's a lot of and depending on the weapon there sometimes is a greater plume which is that cloud of GSR so you know if there were no GSR the state's going to say, well, there are these reasons legitimately why you could still be guilty and this finding is consistent. And of course, if there is GSR, then that's something that they're going to say is consistent with guilt, even though there's things like GSR transfer. So if you're sitting in a police station where there's probably GSR everywhere, you can get Mm -hmm. it on you. I mean, cops handle guns. Cops touch you to arrest you. Like if you have one particle on you, to me, that's almost like exonerating evidence because if you fired a gun you should not have one particle on you Hmm. right and erica can i ask you do you know like with gsr can it it can identify like different kinds of gunshot residue or are they all kind of the same so gsr is made up of antimonium lead and barium so there's three particles and when they're (laughs) okay (laughs) so in order so they have single particle they'll find like a single particle finding or two-part finding or through when they have a three component particle, what they now say is that is consistent with GSR. So you might have certain elements like a, a, a particle of antimonium or a particle of lead, and those could come from GSR or they could come from other like paint remover. There's other, you know, um, other sorts of reasonable explanations as you may have come in contact with. For example, I had a client who said, he was doing heating, ventilation, and air conditioning school. And some of those particles 
single component particles would be consistent. So in my case, my guy had one single three component particle, lead, barium, and antimonium. But then he had a lot of like just lead, just barium um, on his hands. But you've got to have all three for them to say mm -hmm. that it's consistent with GSR. So like someone who worked in construction is likely to have some of those particles, especially if they're working on dilapidated properties like this guy Greg clearly was doing. Or if you have guns in your house. Yeah. Yeah. Good point, which we know he did. Or if you're a bucket in the uh, Baltimore Forensic Lab, which also tested positive for gunshot residue. <laughs> or if you're a bucket in the lab. I'm not kidding. It did. Right. <laughs> uh, so about the question about whether the, um, the police claiming that Greg's guns was one of the murder weapon, I will say no. When they, they took Greg's um, guns, and I can tell you conclusively that they did not identify the murder weapon for a number of weeks after. Yeah. More than a month after, in fact. Hmm. And I have a question, but I won't have an answer because it's that damn dog that, like, no one cares about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how does a dog at the place go missing and no one even blinks? Like, I feel like someone had to have known what happened to it. Or maybe they was, someone, was anyone looking for the dog, though? I mean, did it occur to they, them? To they even, knew like... there was a dog. They should have looked yeah. for the dog. Yeah, that yeah. was super strange. Hmm. I was, I was you know, curious I'm, about that, too. I feel like the dog might have just been, like, low priority for them. You know, they're dealing with, like, this a crime on a scale that I think that areas is not, you know, I mean, that's but not it was a big dog. Like you'd look for someone who shot it probably like that would be what my guess would be like, there's no dog here. Look, look in the fire. Someone shot the dog in the head too, probably. Yeah. Or somebody took it. I think somebody took it. That's my guess. Who, who, who kills someone and takes their dog? That is, yeah, that's just evil. Or let him loose. That's because evil. They, that's, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's that's, that's my line. Also just let, let the dog loose. If the dog was chained outside, let him loose and let him go. Uh, and then, you know, the dog could have run away, you know, who knows? Without his days um, on a farm somewhere. Hmm. I'll choose to believe that. He's at a farm upstate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lovely animal farm. I have one other question, which I think you probably won't answer. Well, I'll ask it in a way maybe you can answer, which is the inconsistency with the Claude guy saying that Greg comes back to their property and Victor's not home. Is that going to figure in later as having significance? Um, the inspection where they said because that's not Greg's storyline, right? That they're that yeah. he comes back. That is the state's narrative. I don't know if it's as significant as the other things that they present as evidence so much, though. Got it. There's no question that that time period was not involved in the murder. Or well, it doesn't seem like it's involved in the murder. So it, it was lower priority in the narrative. And there's there's some other evidence about where Greg was around the eight o'clock hour that we're going to talk about later too. Well, Robbie, can you give us a preview of what we're going to be hearing in the next episode in the series, episode three, State versus Greg Lance? Oh, God. This is maybe the most frustrating episode for me because this is where the state starts constructing the most bullshit, <laughs> batshit crazy narrative ever. I mean, and, and it's it's what frustrates me is that you still have to, you know, you still have to consider it, respond to it take it apart, waste time on it. Um, but it is a really important part of the story and it's amazing that the jury bought it. So yeah, uh, it's the state's gonna uh, sh just show all kinds of pre and post murder events that they are linking to Greg and um, are framing as proof of his guilt. Hmm. Well, Robbie, I can't wait to hear it. Thank you so much for talking about this past episode and what's coming up. I look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you, Erica. Yes. Yeah, so I was going to thank her next, Rabia. <laughs> <laughs> fine. It's fine. I thank all of you.
Oh, that's because you're gracious. And Susan Simpson, thank you. I really appreciate being able to dig in with you into all these forensic details and all the stuff that I feel like when I listen to the podcast, like if you were sitting with me, we would be talking about if we were listening together. So thanks so much, Susan. Thanks, Rebecca. And see you next week. And uh, Erica Suter, it is always wonderful to meet and talk to a real-life super lawyer. Uh, you asked a lot of the questions that I didn't think about and made me think even more about some of the problems with this story. So I really loved meeting you, and I hope to talk to you again. Thank you so much. It was so fun to be able to actually ask the questions in real time that were occurring to me. <laughs> Thanks again to Rabia and the Undisclosed team for asking me to host the addendum this time around. If you like what you hear, if you like me, uh, and you want to hear more about true crime and pop culture, I encourage you to check out Crime Writers On. It's the podcast I host about true crime and pop culture. I also host a little podcast called These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast with my husband, Kevin Flynn. Check that out. Thanks so much to the fearless wrangler of this team, executive producer Methel Telhan, who never fails to ensure we can all do our best work. Thank you so much to the brilliant audio editing skills of Miss Hannah McCarthy. I love you, Hannah. You're an awesome editor, and I love working with you. Thanks so much to the sponsors who support Undisclosed. Without them, this podcast wouldn't get made. So if you hear about a great product or service on one of this show's ads, support Undisclosed by patronizing that sponsor. Also, you can follow Undisclosed on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Undisclosed Pod. Keep sending us your questions about the State versus Greg Lance series by using the hashtag UDAddendum. Finally, a big thanks to my team at Crime Writers On and Partners in Crime Media, especially my husband, Kevin Flynn, who's picking up a lot of slack so I can host this series. For everyone at Undisclosed, thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you to Baluki for our logo, to Patrick Cortez for our theme song, a big thank you to future lawyer and my legal intern, Asra Qureshi. As always, thank you to our sponsors for helping make these productions possible. And of course, thanks to our listeners for coming back week after week to follow these cases. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at UndisclosedPod, and we're also on Facebook and Instagram. And make sure every week when you've got questions for the addendum, you tweet them at us, or you can message us on Facebook. Use the hashtag UDAddendum. <laughs>